humor would be fun just to keep it light and not so dreary, but also that's what people spread. When you think about messages that you get online via Facebook, email, it's <laughs> invariably humor. Sometimes emotion or anger can drive it as well, but yeah. humor spreads like wildfire. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today... I have with me John Halinko. Now, John has had an incredibly interesting and eclectic career. He has long been recognized as an innovator on the grassroots engagement front. He's received numerous awards for his work and been covered by nearly all the major national news outlets. He's the founder of Left Action, an activist community of more than 2 million, which has helped spur grassroots support for a range of progressive organizations and candidates. And he is also, of course, the author of two books, Share, Retweet, Repeat, Get Your Message Read and Spread, and a book on viral marketing and, quote, the title, Pandemic Pickup Lines, which he's used the proceeds of to raise funds for pandemic-related relief. Now, in 2004, John was named one of the world's top 25 individuals, organizations, and companies that are having the greatest impact on the way the internet is changing politics by the World Forum on E-Democracy. And he's also done other really interesting things, recorded a Grammy-winning duet with country music legend Willie Nelson, and also happens to be friends with a several people who've done their stints on Saturday Night Live. And these were some of the buddies that he grew up with. And you'll hear John talk about that as well. But we really do spend quite a bit of time talking about how to use comedy and humor to get a message across. And this is a valuable skill, whether you are doing social media campaigns for politics, but really for anything where you want people to be enrolled, to pay attention, and very importantly, to share and spread your message. And so the focus of our conversation today is primarily around that aspect of utilizing humor to share your message and influence people in a very powerful way. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and that not only stimulates your mind, but also tickles your funny bone. So John, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you here because I don't think I get to talk about humor often enough. And uh, <laughs> there's it's, so it's, much it's, to laugh at, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I think we either have a choice of laughing or crying these days. So, you know, right. laughing is that's good for me. 
Yeah, it's a great survival tool. And I think it's definitely the key to getting through some of maybe lots of what we're facing right now in these days. And I can't help but think of your book of pandemic pickup lines. And I was reading some of these, and I think it might be fun to share with our listeners a couple of these pickup lines. So, okay, some of the pickup lines, just to give our listeners a little sample, would be you can't spell quarantine without you are a QT. I love that one. Right. I love this one. Baby, wherever you stand is a hot spot. <laughs> <laughs> so painful. <laughs> and actually, but Not the um, exponential demand curve one, is it? No. Or is that an exponential growth curve in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? Oh, that's a good one. I didn't (laughs) read that one yet either. Okay. And then here's another great one. Want to come over to my place for a 10 to 14 night stand? (laughs) (laughs) We might have to update that one to the new CDC guidelines to four to five night stand. Four to five night stand. There you go. Exactly. Because things are ever changing. So tell me what prompted you to write this book? So this was earlier on in the pandemic, which has been going on now for, I think, approximately 91 years. This was a couple of months into it. What's that? I said, it feels like, yeah. Oh, it really does. I mean, it's just endless. But my wife and I were sitting around and we both, she's written two books prior to this and I've written one. So we were like, well, we're authors. I feel like we should do some kind of thing pandemic related that could maybe be used to raise money for a good cause. And we we thought about a few different ideas, but we very quickly settled in on humor, figuring, you know, at the time and and still, I mean, there's so much dreary news and this is, you know, pre-vaccine and when uh, hope was in short supply, I figured we needed humor. We had to just be able to laugh at the situation. Otherwise, it was either laugh or cry. And we decided that something that would be really fun would be pickup lines because, you know, I fan of a, a horrible, cheesy pun. Painfully punny icebreakers is what we uh, describe them as. And so we, we said, well, why don't we use, let's do some pickup lines updated for the pandemic and just think of some real groaners and some silly ones, but use that as a mechanism to have people virally spread it because they're so painful and you got to laugh at them. I mean, they're so goofy. So what we did is we put this together and we enlisted the help of uh, literally hundreds of friends to rate each line. And I mean, we got really geeky on it. And my background is in public policy and analysis and statistics. So, you know, of course, I was going to use a good graph and, you know, averages and all kinds of fun stuff. But ultimately, it was humor that drove the spreading of it and the sale. And we attached a fundraiser on it. And in that case, it was for World Central Kitchen, which is Jose Andres. He's this wonderful chef who's been doing a lot of hunger relief work. And at that point, he had just announced work to a fight pandemic-related hunger. Mm. So we used the humorous approach, driven by pickup lines, and were able to raise about $15,000 for uh, hunger relief. So it's a long-winded answer. I apologize if I went on too long, but I I love it. I love it. I love it. And you know, if we're talking about using humor to spread a message, it sounds like you conceived it with that idea of spreading what, to raise money for hunger relief? Yeah, that's... Wanting to communicate or... Yeah. Well, I mean, that is an excellent point. Like we did conceive the humor as a message spreader. And I should back up, like part of what I do, uh, my day job 
is running something called Left Action. It's an online internet-driven community, about a million folks. And it was built through viral spreading. So I've done a lot of work over the years, figuring what gets people spreading a message. And humor is a big part of it. So we thought of a couple of things with this. We thought, well, humor would be fun just to keep it light and not so dreary. But also, like, that's what people spread. Like, when you think about messages that you get online via Facebook, via email, whatever new social media thing that's come about that my kids know about that I don't, whatever the latest one is, it's <laughs> invariably humor. I mean, you know, there's sometimes emotion or anger can drive it as well, but yeah. humor spreads like wildfire. Right. So that's what we wanted to do. And we thought this would, I mean, the idea was not to make money for ourselves, but to basically do our part to raise some money for a good cause. And humor seemed to be the host mechanism upon which the good cause itself could ride and thrive. Yes, I love the term viral, particularly. <laughs> oh my God, I haven't thought of that. <laughs> With this book. That is ironic, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder if COVID genomes are think they're funny. I don't know. <laughs> That's awful. Okay. Um, no, you got You know, humor is what we need. That's how we get through the day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when did you first discover your... I feel like, I feel like, right, some of us feel more connected to humor than others. So do you recall when you first really hit you that humor was kind of a really powerful way of sharing? Oh, yeah, totally. I grew up with a lot of very, very funny friends. I grew up in a community called Valley Stream on Long Island. It's a great place to grow. Oh, you were going to say somewhere in New York. How did I Oh, yeah, totally. New York, (laughs) both parents from Brooklyn. You know, I mean, it's just... it's like a certain style of humor and conversation that's just in, you know, it's so indelibly New York. Indelibly, is that the right word? It's so clearly like, and where I grew up, like the way you would talk was just like you would banter. I mean, like that's how people talked and conversed. And it wasn't long Elizabethan soliloquies. It was, you know, just kind of trash talking and fun. And I had a very, very funny group of friends. One of the friends that I grew up, one of my best friends, is a guy named Fred Armisen, who was uh, the star of Portlandia oh, and wow. uh, played Barack Obama on Saturday Night Live. And he's just a great guy, funny. So really people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. He is ridiculously funny. And another guy was this guy, Jim Brewer. Really funny people. Got oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like professionally <laughs> funny. And another one was this guy, Jim Brewer, who was also on Saturday Night Live. He played, he did the Joe Pesci imitation and oh, Coach yeah. Boy. <laughs> So, I mean, to think about how crazy that is to be in a school where two people in your class go on to Saturday Night Live. Yeah, really? So the bar was set very high. Yeah, yeah. But I had, I mean, you know, when you'd banter with Jim or Fred, I mean, you know, to this day, Fred and I will still text back and forth and it's hilarious, but, you know, you got to have your A game. And those were just, you know, there were a whole bunch of other Dennis, Dave, Frank, Mike. I mean, like, I just could think of this whole group of friends that were absolutely hilarious and still are hilarious to this day. So humor was how we conversed. Humor was how we got ideas across, how we got people to listen to you. I'm still annoyed that Jim beat me by like just a few votes for class clown, but he's ah. a good guy. So, But I mean, you know, it was something that how we talked. And so I recognized the power of it fairly early on, then used it more in college. I hosted a comedy radio show in grad school. I did some stand-up and improv. And then 
Back in 1997 or 98, I'm spacing on the year, I worked with some people who were starting up MoveOn.org, which is an online activist community. And uh, we injected some humor in some of the early communications. And I saw just how it spread. So it got me thinking, well, this isn't just about having fun or being funny. It's about spreading an important message, getting a, an activist request across piercing the veneer of cynicism that people have so they'll listen to you for just a second and then maybe smile and then maybe laugh and then maybe listen to your message and act thereupon accordingly. Mm. Do you remember what that first message was that caught your attention? I know it was a long time ago. There was one message that I wrote. I think it was asking people to volunteer hours to work. And I'm spacing on which one Wes wrote and which one Joan wrote, but there was one where I talked about how, uh, I can't remember if it was working or voting, but the, basically it, it played off a whole bunch of urban legends. Like if you don't vote, you won't end up in a bucket of ice or a bathtub full of ice missing a kidney. You won't. Bill Gates won't send you to Disneyland, blah, blah, blah. Like all these things that wouldn't happen. And this is early on, like, you know, urban legends, rumors spreading via the net. But I said, but you will allow right-wing crazies to run something to that effect. But the basic hook was listing the whole like laundry list of these, you know, ridiculous urban legends. And we saw it spread and we saw it make an impact and people acted, they signed up and it really had a big impact. One of my favorite ones was about a year or two later, we were working on behalf of some campaign finance legislation. Again, this is with moveon.org. And one of the senators, I believe it was Mitch McConnell, now that I think about it, said, Americans care as much about campaign finance as they do static cling. So I turned to Wes Boyd, who was one of the founders of, <laughs> along with his wife, Joan Blades, one of the founders of Move On and said, you know, we should have someone dress up as a static cling victim. Right. And up and <laughs> up in Congress. And they said, John, that's a good idea. You want to do it? They <laughs> so, uh, flew across the country, got a whole bunch of laundry and like paper clipped it or uh, safety pinned it rather to my dress. So I look like a pile of laundry. And there I am walking through the halls of Congress. Uh, well, technically the congressional offices and delivering petitions, 50,000 petitions on behalf of campaign finance reform. And we talked about how I was the worst static cling sufferer, but even I recognized that campaign finance reform was more important than static cling. <laughs> And how we had fought hard against the cling, the static cling and the Klingons in order right, to live long thing, and prosper. The Klingons, right? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> like, we, we, had, we had a lot of fun and it was great. And I do distinctly remember passing Strom Thurmond, who must've been close to a hundred at that point and him just kind of, yeah. And give me this look like, is that a pile of laundry walking along? <laughs> but, you know, it was fun. We got a fair amount of press for it and it was just, you know, there's a time and a place for political outrage, but there's a time and a place as well for kind of wrapping it in chocolate and candy and making it palatable and sweet and fun. So people get the message, but they're not constantly just beaten over the head with this, right. you know, dreariness. Mm -hmm. True, because there's only so many scare tactics you can use before people just become tone deaf to them. Like they just don't even hear them anymore because it's like, yeah, 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 I know the world's going to end. Totally. I mean, the chicken little thing, you know, it goes so far. And then at a certain point, it's like enough chicken little. What about a rubber chicken? You know, that, let's... <laughs> there you go. how about hitting me with a rubber chicken? Yeah. You know, somewhere around here, I've got a rubber chicken and I use it for a 
Washington, D.C. voting rights thing that for the life of me, I can't remember what the point of the chicken was, but I brought it to a protest and it was for D.C. congressional rights. Of course, do not have any members of Congress. Right. Well, we have one non-voting delegate who's wonderful. But if you're a non-voting delegate, it's like being a baseball player who's a non-hitting batter. I mean, you know, right. they send you to the play without a bat. There's just so much you can do. I mean, <laughs> right. A bench warmer. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how are you utilizing humor now in your current role? The main work I'm doing is left action. Like that's the day-to-day kind of work. And then my wife, Lee, started up an organization called Women Up, which is similar to left action, but aimed at progressive women. And we're running those on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of the way we're really using humor is not surprisingly on Facebook and in social media, because humor spreads like wildfire and Facebook and social media are naturally viral environments. And day-to-day, pretty much every day, there's some kind of meme up there talking about... People can go to Facebook and look for left action and see all kinds of fun stuff. But like, I mean, I hate to joke about the Chris Rock thing, but someone had a great quote that was, if Will Smith was going to make a joke about someone's wife, he should have done it about Ted Cruz's wife, because that has shown that when you do that, Ted Cruz will work tirelessly to get you elected president. Oh, wow. That is a good one. It was. And I'm spacing on that. We didn't come up with that. We posted it with credit. But it was one of my favorite types of humor, revelatory humor, current events. So it made a point and with a surprise, you know, you thought he was going in one direction and then he came up with another one. Another one is we posted recently is just more simple. It's simply a big smiling picture of Donald Trump. And it says Barack Obama is my president. Uh, Not Barack Obama. (laughs) Joe Biden is my president. president. Yeah. So. You know, we find that it spreads messages very effectively and we have actions that are serious and targeted. And then there's a place for that. But the basic spreading of the action that is done using a lot of humor. Yeah, I can see that as I'm scrolling through. Oh, it's also fun. I see one of my good friends is an avid follower of your page. <laughs> oh, right on. I'll tell them, tell them thank you. Shout out to Kitty Connell. <laughs> All right. Excellent. A very talented novelist, by the way. (laughs) Oh, right on. I'll have to check out her stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. So I did finally remember the pandemic humor that really, I just wowed me that I loved, was if COVID-19 doesn't take you out, can I? (laughs) I'm so glad you like that one because that... (laughs) We had like mixed feeling, like mixed opinions on that. Like some of the feedback was, well, that's just so depressing. And I was like, no, it's funny. It's gallows humor. It's like, it's great. I've always been more of the dark comedy type. So <laughs> are you a New Yorker as well? Or yes. <laughs> yeah, that that's I assumed it, but just... right, right. <laughs> it's, it's true. Have you noticed like kind of as you as you travel around like sort of different styles of humor that are regional. That's kind of an interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I'm living in DC now. I've lived in the past Long Island, Brooklyn, Manhattan, yada, 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 the whole, you know, New York area. But I'm in DC now. And I, I encounter a lot of people from different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And there are definitely certain types of humor that play. For example, one of the things my daughters have noticed who've grown up mainly in DC is when my friend, well, a shout out to Frank Campo, came down to visit and we were just bantering back and forth and having the best time. And then my younger daughter, I think it was, said, God, you're, 
sound like you hate each other. And I was like, no, we love each other. That's how we communicate. We joke with each other. I mean, like, for example, I told him that I'd gone to my trainer at the gym earlier and he says, you've been using a trainer and you still look like that. <laughs> I was like, that's great. And that's something that in New York, or even I would oh. say with specific areas of New York. Oh, absolutely. That is the mainstay. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But in DC, like, well, my wife is from Alabama. In Alabama, like the family will definitely banter and they're various and just absolutely wonderful, but the tone is a little bit different. And I noticed folks from the Midwest, for the most part, like it tends to be more like the mean spirited, and maybe I'm just not close enough to, but the sort of like insult driven humor tends to be less, I think. But it's an interesting question, though. I don't know how much of it is me noticing differences in regions versus just being so comfortable with the New York, you know, style mm -hmm. that maybe I'm more in my element there. Right, right. Because the New York humor, I think, does have kind of a specific, I do think it does tend to be dark humor or and or <laughs> that's a sort of insult but you know i wouldn't insult you unless i loved you right? exactly it's like yeah, that, that's how bother. yeah <laughs> it's a weird wonderful type of humor and i mean i still love it i mean like i mentioned that you know fred and i will text and there's this whole gang of folks from high school and we'll text each other and it's just so much of it is just dissing each other, but it's just absolutely hilarious. I mean, just some of the <laughs> insults and the places people go are just unbelievable, but that's because, you know, we love each other and we can do that. And it's like, you can say stuff about people in your family. And in this case, I consider them basically extended family that you couldn't say to just someone that you're not close to. Yeah. So I'm thinking when we go back to using humor to spread a message and how touchy social media can be, especially in this era of the cancel culture that we're also experiencing. How do you cope with those? You know, have you had that show up where like, there's like a sort of a backlash response to certain posts? And if so, how do you handle those? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, there's a tendency for people both on a personal level and an organizational level to react a lot more quickly and get a lot more emotional much more quickly than and social media than they would in real life. Like when you're talking with someone face to face, there's a different dynamic. But when you're online, perhaps anonymous or with an assumed identity, then you can just go from zero to 60 in half a second. And suddenly there's a huge argument that started out as a post over tax incidents and the capital gains optimal tax. And you're like, how did this possibly get into like, you know, racism? And it's just, it's people make a lot of assumptions, I think, and don't give people the benefit of the doubt because when you've depersonalized someone, I mean, I've heard people say like when you were in battle, often like one of the things you do is dehumanize the opponent because it makes it easier to do what you need to do, which I guess is it's a horrible example, but I think people get it that when you dehumanize people online, you can insult them and you can go places where you never would if you just realize, hey, this is a person, this is a person trying to do their best under tough circumstances, probably living through a pandemic, maybe give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, when I've encountered that, it sort of depends, like with left action or some of the similar pages, when I've encountered that, I try and make a judgment as to, is this person saying something in good faith, but perhaps using the wrong terms or going too far? And then I try and talk them down a bit, or are they just a chronic idiot? 
And if they are, then I just kind of, you know, just use the humor, throw it right back and show them the love. Right. (laughs) A lot of times you have to decide who your audience is. Like there are times when people come on and say like just really, you know, extreme things. And I'm like, sorry, this is just, you've lost your right to have the benefit of the doubt. And there were hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of other people there observing perhaps the moment, perhaps a day later, whenever, and they need to see a response. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes just let them have it and go all Joe Pesci on them. And (laughs) (laughs) I presume you mean Goodfellas Joe Pesci and not my cousin Vinny Joe Pesci. (laughs) Well, being that I do have a cousin Vinny. (laughs) <laughs> now, you know, I should say I'm half Italian, so that's clearly from the Italian he side. Was, he was actually pretty effective too. Even oh yeah, he was great. My cousin yeah. Vinny is wonderful. Yeah, I'm in the movie yeah. and my actual cousin Vinny. Well, oh good. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was thinking Joe Pesci, Goodfellas. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is just such an amazing role. I think I've seen that movie probably at least a hundred times. Yeah, so good. Now you've got me distracted, but yeah, I was thinking about you know one of the things that frustrates me with people's having a lot of opinions on social media is (laughs) and feeling the need to share them on my page when I've just posted whatever. But, you know, I think when it's very clear that they've not actually looked into the issue, they're just posting their opinion based on what somebody told them to think, but they clearly don't have all the information. And that's frustrating to me because if I'm going to post an opinion, I at least try to go read a few articles and find out what actually happened or what is in reference to, you know, I guess like when there was some posting around the verdict on the the actual child who had demonstrated some potentially pedophilic tendencies in the confirmation hearing last week with our recent Supreme Court justice nominee. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at least read about what the case was and what the circumstances were. And don't just say, oh, well, I guess if you're okay with confirming someone who protects pedos, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. It's so crazy. People, if you read the case and what actually occurred, like her ruling was completely appropriate in that circumstance. Yeah, she's wonderful. She's unbelievably qualified. I mean, like, she is like, you couldn't script a better Supreme Court. uh, Yeah, and and people, and they know what they're doing. There's this tendency. Well, there's an author called Jonathan, I don't know if he pronounces it height or hate, but it's H-A-I-D-T, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, and he talks about how in politics and religion, people often go for what is tribally convenient to form their opinion. So it's not what they base on facts. It's like, well, this is what my tribe thinks, but I'm going to think. And another great way, like Jim Brewer, the friend I mentioned that I'd grown up with in Valley Stream, get a line that he had in one of his videos, and it was just a sort of a throwaway line, but I think it was just brilliant, where he talked about how he's sick of politics because it's like professional wrestling, where it's one side screaming at another about whose side is better. And I was like, that's, that's, that is so true. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because I've had to start asking people now on Facebook, okay, are we talking about this issue as if we're talking about the Yankees versus the Red Sox, where we're going to just trash talk? Or right. do you actually care about the truth? Do you right. care if what you're saying is true? Yeah. And usually there's an initial reaction. Well, of course, I'm like, no, no. And I say, look, oh, I'm not insulting you. I'm just asking you, is this a banter conversation, trash talk, or do you actually care about the facts? Because if you care about the facts, then we can talk about facts and data. But if not, then it's useless to have the conversation or we'll just, you know, mock each other and have mm-hmm. fun. But 
you've got to ask people if truth matters. And that's a frightening thing. And it's a dangerous thing for our nation. Yeah, exactly. I think my comment to this particular person was, perhaps before you post something like this, you ought to read up on, get all the facts, get all the information, yeah. what the actual circumstance was. And that seems so reasonable. I mean, and I think we're in an era where, you know, had this been 50 years ago, and we were in New York, my grandfather worked for the Brooklyn Eagle, which was the paper back then. And when they would publish something, or the New York Times or the Daily News or whatever, I mean, like there was a process you'd have to go through and you didn't always get it right, but there was at least a process. But now we're in an era where any individual can reach tens or hundreds of thousands of people with completely erroneous information. And if it's tribally convenient to believe that, it can spread like wildfire. And variants will pop up that spread even faster than that. Yeah, exactly. And that is so disturbing because then the lines between truth and, you know, fact and lies, <laughs> truth and lies and fact and fiction become so muddied. And it really, you have to be so vigilant if you really are interested in the truth. You've got to be willing to dig for it. And yeah, you basically have to become an editor. Yeah, yeah. Just and, you know, most people don't have that even those necessarily skills, never mind interest. <laughs> well, there, there's a great line, and I'm spacing on who it was. I want to say maybe Mark Twain, maybe Will Rogers, but it was something to the effect of, it's difficult to convince someone that what they believe is a lie when believing it's true, when their job depends on them believing that it's true. Mm. Something, I'm butchering it, but there's, if you see a similar thing here, if people's tribal comfort depends on them believing that something that's utter horse crap is true, then they'll believe it. And, yeah. you know, all of us can be guilty of this. I mean, there's like, I live in DC, I'm in a generally a liberal bubble. And, you know, I have to try and like, take a breath when someone says something that's something I disagree with just to try and, well, let me hear them out. Let me hear what they have to say. Well, it's true, because there's definitely times where more information also can inform what might be considered a liberal point of view. We're all in danger of just swallowing something whole because it came from our tribe. Totally. I mean, like there's one incident I think of, I've got a friend, Mike Turk, who's conservative, absolutely great guy, very conservative. We've had some wonderful conversations where we've exchanged, like we've talked rationally and we're friends, we hang out. You know, we have an interest in keeping, you know, not just slamming each other, but actually like having conversations. And I remember talking to him about gun safety. And I said, you know, I don't know why somebody needs a magazine that holds a hundred rounds. I mean, give me a break. And he said, well, actually, have you ever had to defend yourself against wild boars on a farm out in the country? And I was like, no, I could say for say sure that I have not. And he, said, <laughs> yeah. and he made an interesting point, which was, well, actually, you may have to put like a lot of rounds into them and they can be unbelievably dangerous and they, you know, they can kill you. That was something I was confident having grown up in Valley Stream and Brooklyn and Manhattan, like that I never, not a lot of wild boars in Brooklyn Heights. Well, and uh, Central Park, really. Yeah, yeah. Not, anyway. not anymore. I mean, there's that shepherd's meadow, but yeah, sheep I don't meadow. Think any, yeah, sheep meadow. Yeah, I don't know if there's any sheep or. I actually had a friend. I, I, was, there. <laughs> I had a friend who used to tell people that he was the shepherd in sheep's meadow. <laughs> it was amazing. How, like when we were living in Manhattan, like he would tell people that, and it was amazing how many people believed him. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just there, just hanging out, just waiting. Yeah. I think you're probably mostly hurting softballs and baseballs if you're, if oh, you're, God, if you're I remember anything over there. <laughs> it would drive me crazy. I, sorry, I'm like tangent man today, but like <laughs> it would drive me crazy the way like the outfields would intersect. 
because I was usually thrown in right field because I'm a crappy player. So I'd always be like balls coming from another game. I mean, right. Central Park, I'm glad they have those, but it would drive me crazy to play in right. there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I steered you off. Oh, we were talking about Wild Boar and Magazine. Oh, yeah. But I just think of that as an example of because Mike and I had this good conversation, we respect each other. I was able to learn something and say, okay, well, if you're in, you know, West Texas and you're Arkansas or somewhere where you've got like a big piece of land and you got to deal with wild boars, I can see why you might need a high capacity weapon. But on the other hand, let's agree that here, maybe, you know, in DC or New York or something that it can mean something very different and it's not primarily defensive. And I think that's an issue where there's, I forget who used the expression more heat than light you know, because guns, people understandably have very strong feelings, and I do as well in a big, big way. But if you could slightly tweak someone's state of maybe not change their mind overall, but at least modify what they believe, that's an achievement today, especially in that kind of issue. Yeah, it's really the key, because if there's going to be any forward movement, there's probably going to have to be some compromises made on both sides. And that's not just for gun control or gun regulation. There's lots of issues that... (laughs) I mean, there there are all kinds of issues that people have strong opinions on. And I think we can recognize that, like you said, in order to move forward, you're going to need to compromise. And doesn't mean compromising your principles, your core beliefs or basics, you know, with human rights and things that are define who we are. But think about the capital gains tax. I'm an econ geek going back, way back, but I've had conversations about the capital gains tax and about carried interest taxes. And Things that are so, so geeky and so the kinds of things that you could plug into a computer, do some analysis and come up with some answers. And yet people have emotionally vested opinions that have nothing to do with rationality. And you can't say, well, I want 19%, you want 25, let's agree on 22 if it's a matter of life or death. And it's not. You set tax policy, you set all kinds of policies, but after analysis, if everything is an emotional battle and everything is a battle to the death, then how do you possibly advance? Right. That is also a great point. Are there certain things that just humor just doesn't work? 9-11 is still one that I'm like, (laughs) yeah, that's a tough one. Although even that, I mean, like, I think it depends on how you approach the humor. There can be tough issues like, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of horrible events throughout history, you know, that we can think of pretty obviously. I think it depends on who's doing it and how it's done and what the point is. Like if it's just literally mocking someone's misfortune or their death or something horrible like that, then then it's, you know, you're not going to get all three stooges and the slapstick on planes crashing into buildings. But if you can use it to make a point and it's viewed as a way of bringing more understanding or I'm trying to think of a good 9-11 joke example. And I just really... yeah. I used to work in the World Trade Center complex, like technically World Financial Center, but I would go through the World Trade Center. So that's still a tough one. Yeah. Maybe there are some areas that just aren't funny. Yeah. I guess if it's done in a way that relieves pain, like I think about the Borscht Belt humor, like so many of the best comedians from like a hundred years in America had come from, I mean, like overwhelmingly was from like Russia, Ukraine, and they were Jewish. I mean, not only, but people who dealt with unbelievable oppression and just horrible circumstances became like, it led to a type of humor that was basically like, well, in order to not go crazy, we've got to have this humor to kind of get us through the day. And like that kind of thing, I just have unbelievable respect for. I mean, people who can 
yeah. including some of my own family. I mean, who could do that kind of humor and have that shtick? And I don't know, like there's something kind of amazing, the survival instincts there. And I think that the best comedy comes out of pain yes. really, so often. And really even a lot of the best comedians, like if you look at their story. Well, I had a great, like I took this class years ago, I think for the learning annex, which is very, Oh yeah. Very, uh, yeah. Very New York kind of thing to do. But I had this teacher, Jack Morton, who'd done a lot of comedy and really nice guy, but he had this throwaway line where he said, why do I do comedy? Cause it's cheaper than therapy. Yeah. I said, like, no. God, that is just brilliant. Right. Yeah. And it's so true. I mean, and it is true too, because I think good comedy, you're telling the truth, right? And I've done a little bit of stand up myself. And I think that one of the great things about writing a stand up set is if you do it right, you really have to confront yourself, right? And whatever your experience was, and you find a way to tell the truth about it in a way that's funny. But you're not necessarily trying to be funny, but <laughs> you're just because the truth is funny. Right. Totally. And especially if it's your truth. Because we know it's true. I totally. About that, right? There's another great line. I forget who said this, but they said, stand-up comedy is not about people delivering funny material. It's about funny people delivering material. So it's yeah. telling their truth. Yes, exactly. And they are funny, but they're delivering their material. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of jokes that I couldn't do because it would be ridiculous. It's not my experience. But if I could talk about like, you know, the gang from Valley Stream and growing up and seeing Goodfellas and thinking it's like home movies. I mean, it's <laughs> like that. That is an actual experience. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, humor, it's got to be based in some kind of truth because mm -hmm. that's what gives it that revelatory angle where people say, oh, yeah, that's right. What he or she said is what we were all thinking. Well, that's because it was the truth. You just said you hadn't really formulated it in your head. And when I think the more personal that you are, the more universal what you're saying becomes. That's a great point. And I noticed that too. I tell my authors that when they're writing their books, it's like the more deeply personal you can get, the more is be recognizable as more universal type experience. Yeah, that is a great point. Because if it gets you know intensely personal, the odds are pretty high that a lot of other people have felt that in some shape or form, even if they're from a different culture or a different experience, like there's certain things that you feel that are going to be common. You suddenly have a bond with someone who might be halfway across the world, but you've united in that moment and you're together. Yeah. That's cool. That's like magic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. On that note, I think we have to go to my final question. Oh, sure. Trademark question, but this has been so fantastic. So my final question is, what did I not ask you that you would like to answer? What question did I not ask that you would like to answer? That's a great, great question. Boy, I'm trying to think like, who do you want to give a shout out to is one possibility, but I've already done that with my wife, Leigh, and my mom, Camille. And watch, I haven't done that. Camille Holenko, one of the best, actually the best mom, I should say. I want to be careful because my wife is also a mom. Uh, <laughs> so they are the two best. I totally experienced her as a mother, though. So. Exactly. <laughs> as your mother. Um, well, I guess maybe like, what is my favorite movie? Okay. What is your favorite movie? It's a tie. One of them won't surprise you, Goodfellas, but Annie Hall, I think is probably the other one too. Just, oh, yeah. yeah, just the type of humor mm -hmm. in the, I guess they're both so intensely New York, different types of experiences, but so intensely New York that, because I hadn't realized how much New York, even though I've been out of there for 20 years, well, most of the last 20 years, 
it's still a part of who I am. And I guess I'm still in a New York state of mind. Yeah. I was going to say, you can take the boy out of New York, but. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> I'm curious though, because Annie Hall and Goodfellas are really different films. Yeah. I got a sense of what you like about Goodfellas. Is there something in particular about Annie Hall that really resonates with you, that particular line you recall? I think uh, when they go back in time, when he's on the day with Annie and they go back and his friend is there and he says, they can't hear you, Max. And he's looking at his family from like the, his childhood. Like there's something about that that I just found magical. The idea that you could just kind of go back into your past and see your childhood. And I wish I could do that on occasion. But I remember that scene just sticking with me and being like, wow, what a great. And then, of course, the line where he says, you know, where she asked if he, if he loves her. And he says, I more than love you. I love you. And something about that just it was magical. But I think maybe it's the fact that, I mean, my dad's side, I'm Slovak. But on my mom's side, I'm Italian and Jewish, a combination. So it might be that those two movies just both speak to different parts of me. And maybe there hasn't been a great Slovak comedy made yet. Well, I'd have to think about that. I'm sure there's somewhere. Maybe I just is. don't understand it. Right. Well, this has been so wonderful, John. And I want to thank you again for being with us on The Author's Corner. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 